go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful that You have an everlasting kingdom, one that will abide forever, one that has already been inaugurated by our Lord Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. We are already transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Your beloved Son. We are the kingdom of God. Christ is reigning over us even now by faith in our hearts, and He reigns over all the universe. Your sovereignty rules over all. And one day that reign will find its full expression in the eternal state. When the wicked will have been consigned to eternal hell, and the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father forever. And we do long for that day. We're thankful that Your truth abideth. We're thankful that Your truth will overcome and conquer through us. That there is no thwarting Your Word or Your purposes. And so we know as a church that the truth will march on. The gates of Hades will not come against the true church. The church will expand and grow. And what started as a little mustard seed, a group of 12 followers in Judy, uh, in the land of uh, Palestine there, has now grown to be uh, like a tree, larger than all the other trees, with the birds of the air nesting in its branches, the nations of the world dwelling in the kingdom. And we're grateful to be a part of that kingdom, Lord. And we long for it to continue to grow. And now as we come together to study this uh, important topic of evangelism, I pray that you would give us help and grace to understand how to better communicate the gospel to non-believers so that you might be pleased to use us to bring people into your kingdom for the praise of your own glory. To which end we pray. Amen. Alright, so we are in the midst of a study on the spiritual disciplines. And by way of review, we've looked at the first three disciplines in detail so far. We're currently on the fourth. Uh, what were the first three disciplines that we looked at? Does anybody remember? you got a blank page, you're in trouble. Does anybody remember the first three spiritual disciplines? God, man, Christ. Oh, that's the outline. Okay, that's the outline we're going through now. Okay. But what about the first three spiritual disciplines we looked at? We can start at the beginning if you guys want. Going back before evangelism? Yeah, right. So there's prayer. Prayer. Bible intake, right? And then worship, right? Prayer, Bible intake, and worship. So now we're on the fourth one, that of evangelism. And I told you that this is coming in two parts, primarily. I think I'm going to add a third part as well to kind of summarize all of this and bring it to a practical close. But uh, two primary parts to this lesson on evangelism. Uh, The first one was the basics of evangelism. We talked about the who, what, when, where, why, how of evangelism, right? We concluded that that evangelism is not just our personal testimony, is it? What is evangelism? Evangelism is... Sharing the gospel, right? The word euangelizo means to announce the good news. So again, we cannot share the gospel without words. We have to have words, either written or verbal, or spoken words, but we have to have words. Every, every Christian is called to do evangelism everywhere, at all, all times. We're to be always ready to make a defense for the faith that proclaimed the gospel. But now we're on the second part, and that is what I've entitled the essential components of a gospel message and outline for evangelism. And so the goal in this lesson is to provide you with a little five-point outline of truths to communicate as you seek to convey the gospel to unbelievers. So now, what were the five points of those out, of that outline? Caitlin. Okay, God, man, Christ, response, and promises one. Right, so this is a kind of a five-point outline. God, man, Christ, response, promises, and warnings. So when we're communicating the gospel to the unbeliever, they need to know 
who God is. That's where it begins. The problem that people have in our culture is they do not understand the character and the holiness of God. What is, uh, what is one of the common things we hear when we knock on a door or go out and give out a track and ask people where they're going and they say they're going to heaven? What are, what are one of the reasons they give for why they think they're going to heaven? They're, they're what? Good. Good. What did you say? God loves everybody. God lo- okay, there's another one. So they're good. God loves everybody, right? I mean, how could God not love me? I mean, look at me. I'm a pretty good person, right? God knows my heart. But we talked about the fact that the reason we think we're good is because we have a lower view of God than we should have, and consequently we have a lower view of God's standard, and thus consequently we have a higher view of ourselves. Lower the standard, now okay, I can reach it. But we need to understand that God is perfectly holy, His justice demands the condemnation of the sinner, and He cannot leave the guilty unpunished. Because what do good judges do to criminals? Do they pardon them? No, they punish them. Right? So if God's a good judge and we are the criminal, we're in trouble. The bad news is that God is good. God is good. That's bad news for the sinner. So we talked about God and we talked about His holiness. We talked about His hatred of sin. We talked about His uh, righteous judgment, His perfect justice, and uh, His perfect standard. God demands perfection. We're not perfect. And thus His justice demands our condemnation. And then we talked about, number two, the character of man. And what do we conclude about man? Is he basically good? Is he neutral? He's evil. He's evil, right? He's evil. There's a reason when people go home at night, they lock their doors, right? What are they afraid of? Say that again. Huh? Somebody break? They're not afraid of the dogs and cats and beasts, right? They're afraid of people. Those are the real beasts. People who might break in and steal their belongings and take their children and take their lives. So people are evil and we are a part of the problem. It's not like we're immune. We're out here looking uh, from the outside looking in thinking we're good, they're evil. We're all evil, right? All of us. Jesus even looked at His own disciples and you know what He said to them? If you then being what? Evil. If you then being evil. Jesus said that to His own disciples. So all of us are naturally evil. We all know that we thought things so depraved that if I could play a TV screen right here of every thought you've ever had for everyone at church to see this morning, you would be gone in a heartbeat. And I know that because, number one, I'm just like you. And number two, because the Scripture gives me divine insight into your heart. Our heart is naturally wicked. So we're guilty. We're sinful. Uh, We talked about original sin, right? When does the problem begin? At birth, right? The wicked go astray from birth, Psalm 58.3 says. We talked about our actual transgressions. Not only are we corrupt in our heart and guilty from birth, but we actually break the law of God every day. Right? Lying, stealing, blasphemy, lust, etc., etc., etc. And then we talked about the just penalty. What's the penalty that we deserve for our sin? Death. Even eternal death, right? Separation from the love and grace of God and subjugation to the wrath of God forever in hell. That's what we deserve. And then we talked about man's inability. Man does not possess the ability to do anything that is pleasing to God. Nothing you do can ever please God apart from grace and apart from faith in Christ. Right? What does the prophet say? All of our greatest works are like what? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. Very vivid language. Minstrel rags. Just filthy and disgusting in the sight of God. One theologian put it this way. 
There is enough sin in my greatest deed to damn me forever. Forever. We need the righteousness of another. So that brings us then to point three, which we've considered over the last few weeks, and that's the good news. So far it's been bad news, now we get to the good news. And in a word, the good news is Christ. Christ is the good news. Jesus is the Gospel. And we talked about both His person and His work. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? God in the flesh. Fully God, fully man, right? And then we talked about His work. What did He do to save us? He died on the cross, okay? Is that all He did? Lived a perfect life. What did you say? Huh? Rose. So lived a perfect life, died, rose again, right? Intercedes for us. So last week we talked about how His perfect life satisfied God's law, right? The law demands perfection. Jesus was perfect for us. We talked about how His perfect death satisfied God's wrath. We talked about His resurrection confirming His deity, His exaltation confirming His Lordship, and finally His second coming culminating history. But now we come this morning to the fourth point in the outline, and that is what I call response. Response. So we've considered who God is, who we are in light of who God is, and who Christ is and what He's done to save us. Now the question is, what do we have to do in response to the Gospel to be saved? What do we do to receive the gift of God's grace, to appropriate the work of Christ and apply it to our life? So let me ask you that. What does someone have to do to be saved? Okay, except Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Okay, would you feel that? Would that, that's a common way to put it in our culture. Okay, and I'm not saying that's completely wrong. I think we can word it a little better, though. Um, how, how might you word it? What do we repent and believe? Right, and that a lot of that's kind of what we mean when we say that a lot in our culture. But it's a very sometimes people don't really know what you mean by that. Well, maybe someone thinks, oh, what do you mean by that? Is I just need to pray a prayer and go to church on Sunday? You can do that all you want. If you die in your sin, you'll still go to hell, right? Uh, Plenty of people have prayed the sinner's prayer, right? What are some other uh, expressions that people use to convey the idea of becoming a Christian that really we shouldn't use? What are some other things we've heard? You said we should or shouldn't. Shouldn't. That's right. It's all you got to do, right? You know, give the preacher your hand, give Jesus your heart, right? What else? What are some other erroneous? Ideologies we've heard in terms of giving your life to Jesus. That's another one. What else? God is spirit. God is spirit. That's a good one. That is a true. There you go. God is spirit. Go ahead. Baptism. Okay, so we got to be baptized to be saved. Right? What's wrong with that? Baptism in itself doesn't save. Right. And what are you adding to the gospel if you say you've got to be baptized? Works. Works. And what does that do? Make you Catholic. Makes you Catholic, that's true. It totally distorts the Gospel and you end up with a false and damnable Gospel, right? Trusting in the wrong thing to say. What are some other expressions? You ever heard this one? Make Jesus your Lord. Oh, that one drives me bonkers. Make Jesus your Lord. What did you say, babe? He's already Lord. Exactly. Somebody's been listening. He's already Lord. How about invite Christ into your life? Or say the sinner's prayer. Just ask. Come on, pray. Ask Christ to come on in, right? He's knocking at the door. In reality, if that's what the verse is talking about, Him knocking at the door of your heart, He can kick the door down if He wants. Jesus is sovereign, right? 
So it's more than just, oh, invite Christ into your life. It's repent and believe. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. The Bible has a lot of kind of ways of summarizing uh, our response to the Gospel. And one of my favorites is in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. Matthew 18, verse 3. Jesus says... Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. One more time. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven, what do you have to do? You have to be converted. Alright, now what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be converted? Does anybody know what that word means? Huh? Your mouth was moving, but I didn't hear anything. <laughs> Does anybody know what it means to be converted? We use that word a lot in Christian circles, but I don't think we usually know what it means. That's definitely involved in it, for sure. Definitely entails that. Definitely involves that. I take it as just like a change without having definition you know, converting from one thing into something different. You guys got so the word the Greek word is strefo, it means to turn. Okay? So unless you turn, you can't get in the kingdom. Now there's something there's there's a negative and a positive side of the turning. There's something you have to turn away from and something you have to turn to if you're going to be in get get into the kingdom of God. Okay? What do we have to turn from? Your sin. Your sin? What else? Even your own righteousness, right? Turn from your own... Even your good works, turn away from them. Turn from yourself. Your sin and yourself. And then what do we turn to? Christ. Christ, Jesus, God, righteousness. Right? Turn to Christ. So we turn from sin and we turn to Christ. In other words, we repent and we believe. That's what we have to do to be saved. So if you say, how do I get in the kingdom? How can I have my sins forgiven? How can I be right with God? Repent and believe. What does the word repent mean? We use that word often as well. Change of mind. Change of mind. That's exactly. From to now, I do think the biblical connotation of the word is turned from. But the literal definition of the Greek word metanoia is, is an afterthought, a change of mind, to think differently afterwards. But biblically, it involves a conscious turning away from sin to God. Okay, Let's go to Matthew chapter 21, a few pages to the right. And we'll get an illustration of repentance from the master teacher himself. Matthew 21, starting at verse 28, we have the parable of the two sons. The parable of the two sons. Verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and he went. What, what do we call that? Repentance, right? Verse 30. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. So you got two sons. One son is asked to go work in the vineyard. He says, I'm not going. And then later he regrets it. He feels remorse. Turns around and he goes. 
The second son says, yes, sir, you got it, Dad. And he doesn't do it. So what, who do you think these two sons are illustrations of? Other than our own children, perhaps. Who are they illustrations of? I see a false profession of faith on the one end. Great. He who rejects God and repents and Amen. comes to God. That's a very good point. So we have a false profession, right? One guy says, yeah, I love Jesus. I love God. But doesn't obey the Word of God. Doesn't feel remorse for his sin. Continues in it. Right? He's not the real thing. If we keep reading, we actually have the answer. Look at verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? Which of the two sons did the father's will? The one that repented, right? And he's speaking to the religious elite here, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they said, the first. Jesus is such a good teacher. He would often get the religious leaders to testify against themselves. And that's exactly what they did here. So they said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe in him. Right? So who does the first son represent? The tax collectors and the prostitutes who were living wicked, rebellious lives, but then felt remorse and turned away from their evil lifestyle and did the will of the Father. But the Pharisees are representative of the second son because they said they loved God, they said they were seeking to please God, but they rejected His very Son. Right? These were men who made a false profession of faith. So repentance then is a turning around, right? Starting the wrong way, but turning around to go the right way. Let me ask you this. When we talk about repentance, what are, what are some important elements of repentance? What, what, what all does repentance involve? We, we know it involves turning around, but is that it? How else would you describe repentance? Acknowledge of your sin. So there's a knowledge of sin, right? It's got to begin there. No one's going to turn from sin that he doesn't know he's committing. So knowledge of sin and, what would you say? Expressing grief over it. And grief, right? We're really sorry. Why are we sorry? Because we got caught? Because we don't want to go to hell? Typically, that's how why people are sorry. But in order for true division, you're not sorry because you got caught. You're sorry because you sinned against the Holy God. Amen. Exactly. So true repentance is not mere sorrow over the consequences of sin. Oh, I'm going to go to hell. I better repent. No, true repentance is deep grief, deep sorrow over the fact that I've sinned against the God I now love. That's repentance. I now love God. I am grieved that I offended Him. I want to turn away from that and do what is right. That's repentance. Thomas Watson, in a very good book I'm reading, Sean, you know this book. I bought it in Tennessee along with about 5,000 other books. It's amazing that we're not broke and living on the streets yet. Sean and me both. But when we're talking about the ingredients of repentance, Thomas Watson mentions six key ingredients. Okay, And he says without all six of these, you don't have real repentance. Okay, Number one, as Sean mentioned, a sight of sin. Sight of sin. You realize that you have sinned. Number two is a sorrow for sin. John's two for two so far. So we're sorry. We're grieved that we actually offended our God. Number three is confession of sin. What does it mean to confess, by the way? You admit that you did something wrong. Okay, it involves admitting you did something wrong, right? Uh, the Greek word is, is from two words, homo lego. It means say, say the same thing. 
It's agreeing with God. Lord, You're right. These things are evil. I am wicked. I deserve judgment. And You're right. I did this. This was wrong. That's what confession is, right? So anyone who says to themselves, you know, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm okay. You know, God loves me. I'm pretty good. That's not repent. That's not a repentant heart, is it? A repentant heart understands and agrees with the truth that he is a wretched sinner and deserves judgment. So he confesses. Number four is shame for sin. Shame for sin. We just feel awful. We feel disgusted with ourselves. You ever been there? Like every other day? No. <laughs> Number five, hatred for sin. Okay, we hate our sin. And then number six, a turning from sin. So you see that the turning from sin really is just the end of the process. It's the fruit of the first five ingredients. If I really see my sin, if I'm really sorry for it, grieved over it, confessing it and hating it, I'm going to do what? Turn away. Think about it. Every time a criminal is caught and he's in court, he's sorry, right? What's he sorry about? He got caught. If he's genuinely repentant and sorry, what's he going to do? I think you gave a good answer. Say that again. Confess. He's going to confess, right? But what else? He's going to go to police without them catching him. He's already caught. He's already in the court. So he says he's sorry. He's genuinely sorry. What's he going to do? Go to jail. He's definitely he's probably going to go to jail. He's going to show some kind of remorse. He's going to show remorse and then he's going to stop doing it, right? He's, he's going to stop robbing banks. And if he doesn't, we know he was not really sorry, right? You're really sorry because you did that which is wrong and you feel really guilty. You're going to turn away from it and reform, right? You're going to reform your life. The, the six ingredients? Yeah. Sight of sin? <laughs> Thanks, Mom. There you go. Does anybody else want me to repeat this? Six ingredients? Okay. Number one is a sight of sin. Number two is sorrow for sin. Number three is confession of sin. Number four is shame for sin. Number five is hatred for sin. Number six is turning from sin. And uh, just to summarize it even more simply, repentance is to be sorry for your sin, to hate your sin, and to turn away from your sin. Sam Aldrin's got a book uh, entitled, uh, it's, it's an exposition of the confession. Uh, in fact, we actually brought like 30 copies of our confession I'm going to be giving them away, so I'll make that announcement during the service as well. Uh, but the confession, it's like 40 pages long. It's our confession, our statement of faith as a church. And Sam Waldron wrote a book on it. And in that book, on the chapter of repentance, he gives a very helpful uh, illustration of repentance with a, we're using a tree. Okay, So the tree has various parts. Okay, It starts with the soil, where the roots grow in. Then you have the roots, and you have the branches and the fruit on it. So he, he breaks repentance into four parts. He says that the soil of repentance is saving grace in the regenerate heart. Okay, What is it that produces repentance? Is it something we muster up on our own? How is repentance? How does it come about? The Spirit. God. Right? Go to Acts chapter 5. Acts 5. Verse 31. We'll start at verse 29. Acts chapter 5. Verse 29. I love what Peter does here. Bold, bold man of God. 
This was the guy, by the way, who at one point denied Jesus. And then uh, after the resurrection, he's standing before these authorities with great boldness. Starting in verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging Him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So who is it that grants repentance? God. Go to Acts 11. This is a common theme. Acts 11, verse 18. Peter is giving an account in Jerusalem about the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. And these Jewish believers, they know who is responsible for this great movement. Verse 18. Acts 11.18 When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So who grants repentance here? God. So can a sinner repent on his own? No. Right? What has to happen if the sinner is going to repent? <coughs> Conviction by the Holy Spirit, right? He's got to be what? Born again. That's the distinction between what we call Reformed theology and non-Reformed theology. Reformed theology states the opposite of what most in our culture say. Most in our culture say this, if you believe in Jesus, you'll be born again. But we say, no, you'll never believe in Jesus unless you're first born again. God has to give you the new birth. What's the point of the new birth if you can believe on your own? Demons you believe in God. Say that again. Demons believe in God. The demons believe in God, right? So before you savingly believe in Jesus, you've got to be born again, right? Before you're really converted, God has to give you a new heart and grant you true repentance. So, that's exactly right. Because non-believers, unregenerate people can believe intellectually, right? They can agree with the facts, but they can't. Teacher. Right. Good example. Yes. And they can even believe the right facts. They could come to the conclusion that Jesus is God, right, and not be born again. But for them to ever savingly believe in Christ so that they love Him and delight in Him, they've got to be born again, right? So true repentance is granted by God. Right. Professors, but not possessors. Amen. Number two, Waldron mentions the roots of repentance. So you have the soil in which repentance begins, and it begins in God's grace and a new heart. The roots of repentance, he says, are two things. The true sense of sin and an apprehension of mercy. True sense of sin and an apprehension of mercy. In other words, we see the heinousness of our own sin, and we see ourselves as guilty and deserving of damnation, but we see that God is extending His mercy to us in Christ. That's the roots of repentance. We repent because God gives us new hearts, gives us an awareness of our sin, and also an apprehension of His mercy in Christ. Well, then we come... Are you wanting more notes? So we got the soil of repentance, and that is saving grace and the regenerate heart. That a new heart by God. And we got the roots of repentance. That's a true sense of sin and an apprehension of mercy. True sense of sin and a true sense of God's mercy. Have you ever seen yourself that way? That you are a damned sinner and yet God is extending His grace to you in the Gospel? That's where it begins. But then number three, Waldron mentions the trunk and the branches of repentance. 
And he mentions that those are turning from sin and turning to God. Turning from sin. Turning to God. That's the trunk and branches. And then number four, he mentions the fruit of repentance, and that is obedience. Obedience. So you got the soil. It begins with God's saving grace, regenerating a heart, granting repentance. It then produces a true sense of our guilt and a true sense of God's mercy. That produces a turning away from sin to God. And the fruit of that is obedience to the Word of God. Okay? So what do we say to someone who might say something like this? Wait a minute. If you say we've got to repent to be saved, you're adding to faith. Is that true? Because don't we believe, as a Reformed church, that salvation is by what? Grace, Grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, Christ alone right? The solas of the Reformation. So what, what if some, someone says that? You're adding to faith by making repentance necessary for salvation. How do we answer that? Are we adding to faith? Is that what we're... No? Why not? What would you say? I think your faith, if, if, if that's adding to faith, then what you really are getting at is easy to believe it. Yeah. I 100% agree. So it's not adding to faith. It's an element of faith. It's describing faith, right? Charles Spurgeon said, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Right? You see, you cannot turn to Christ without turning away from sin. And you cannot turn away from sin without turning to Christ. Right? You can't do one without the other. Where any where repentance is, faith is. Where faith is, repentance is. True repentance is a repentant faith, and true faith is a as a believing repentance. Okay, so there is uh, both of these elements in a true conversion. So we're not adding to faith; we're really describing faith. But what if someone says, "But wait a minute, repentance is a work." It's not our work; it's the work of the Holy Spirit. We've already seen that, right? It's you're right. That's what I always tell them. Yes, it's a work of God, right? Not a work of man. But also, is repentance an outward, external thing? No. What is repentance? Inward. Internal, right? Repentance is no more work than faith is. Both of them are inward responses to the Gospel, right? You know, see, baptism, something like that, is something you physically go and do. Repentance is a changed heart that now hates sin and loves God. Right? Just as faith, as we'll see in a minute, is a trusting in Christ with the heart. It's an inward response. But, if the inward response is genuine, it'll have what? Outward effects. Outward fruit, right? So, good works, obedience, righteousness, decreasing sin in our lives, those things aren't repentance. Those things are the fruits of repentance. Those things don't save us. They evidence our salvation, right? Does anyone know what John the Baptist tells the religious leaders in Matthew 3? He tells them to repent and then tells them to do what? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, right? Repent and show it by the way you live your life. Acts 26.20, Paul says the same thing. that They need to turn, repent and turn to God and perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Or as one translation puts it, perform or prove Prove your repentance by your deeds. Okay, So the deeds we do are the evidence of repentance. They're not repentance. Itself. So I think what we have in our culture is a lot of people don't understand repentance. Right? They think what we mean by that is stop sinning. Like, there needs to be a decreasing pattern of sin. Is that repentance? Repentance is a spiritual thing. Yeah. It's a spiritual, spiritual thing. 
Amen. Yeah, work of the Spirit in our hearts, right? And that's it's not we're not just talking about decreasing sin. That would just be morality, right? That is the effect, not the actual root of it. Repentance itself is an inward resolve to abandon our rebellion and turn to God. Okay? And that involves repentance, which is the opposite of easy believism, as Gary mentioned a minute ago, right? Easy believism. What is easy believism? Anybody know? There's no sacrifice involved. Okay. You don't have to do anything. Right? What is it? It's just belief. I just agree with the facts. I can live like the devil and go to heaven because I can ace the Christian test. Does that save anybody? No, it's cheap faith. It doesn't cost anything. Cheap faith, right? Cheap faith, cheap grace, easy believism. It's the lie of antinomianism. The idea that I can believe in Jesus but any way I want to go to heaven. That's not true faith. Saving faith, then, involves a submission to the Lordship of Christ. Go to Luke 14. Luke 14. And all of this is in the context of evangelism. What are we telling the unbeliever? Do you think it's important that we tell the unbeliever how to rightly respond to the Gospel? Is that important? What might happen if we share false information about them? Gospel response. What if we call them to respond in a way that's not biblical? It's a, false, it's a false conversion. False conversion, right? You end up with a guy who prayed a prayer, thinks he's going to heaven, dies and goes to hell with false assurance. We don't want that. We love people. We don't want them to go to hell with false assurance. So we need to call people to respond biblically. Why do you think people are so tempted in the modern evangelical church to water down the gospel? Noses and nickels. We elaborate on that. Uh, noses because they want to they want to uh, yes. pack the pews, and nickels because they want the money to uh, build their bigger uh, church buildings, exactly. and programs, and all these other things. Exactly. Yep. That's that's so churches are motivated to do it because they want to grow. And what's the what do we hear today? If you tell people to repent and submit to Christ, what, what's going to happen? They're going to be offended. You don't want to step on their toes. We need to be seeker-friendly, right? We need to invite people in. What's the problem with that? It's not biblical. It's not biblical, right? Not only that, but if you invite them in by having a circus, you're going to have to continue to have a circus every week to yep. keep them. Yep, what you win them with, you win them to. Right? You win them with a circus, they're going to come next Sunday expecting a circus. We believe that the Gospel is enough. And that if we proclaim the truth, God will save His people. And then they'll come to church willingly, not because they want to be entertained, but because they love God and they want to hear His Word. So let's look at Luke 14. Listen, to Jesus is just the master teacher. Listen to what He does. Verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with Him. Oh boy, imagine the modern evangelical movie. they got big crowds and they're like, okay, hey, we need to get a bouncy house. We need to get the circus going. Let's, let's give these guys cards and tell them to pray the prayer, close their eyes, bow their heads. Look what Jesus does. When the crowds were at their biggest, His words were at their harshest. He wasn't looking for would-be followers. Look what He says. He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Wow. Jesus, what are you doing? Do you not realize this is a bad church growth method? You're going to run people away. You need to be seeker-friendly. Jesus wasn't seeker-friendly. Absolutely not. I mean, He's got this crowd of people 
who are already coming after Him, and that's the hard part, isn't it? Just to get Him in. Jesus has got Him and He runs them away. Verse 27, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. What's He saying there? Is He saying you've got to wear a cross necklace? What's He mean? Say that again. Willing to suffer? What would you say? Unless you are not willing to give up everything to follow. Yeah, because yeah, what was a cross in the first century? Death. Death. Instrument of torture. It was the most gruesome way to die. I mean, they're going to nail you to a cross. You know how you die when you're nailed to a cross, typically? Slowly painfully. Slowly, painfully, and you finally suffocate because you don't have the strength anymore to push on the nail and raise up and breathe. So you finally, after days, most of the time it would be days, they would suffocate. Crows would come and just peck at their heads. I mean, it was a miserable way to die. And to speed up the process on the Sabbath and things like that, they would break their legs with big beams and then you'd die in minutes because you couldn't push up and breathe anymore. You'd suffocate pretty quickly. So Jesus is saying, unless you're willing to die a gruesome death to follow after Me, you're not the real one. You can't be My disciple. Verse 28, For which one of you who, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. See, that's why I don't build things. I know I can't finish, right? Be foolish. We'll leave building to Jeremy and Keith and guys like that. So we're talking about building here. I mean, who enters into a building project flippantly? A fool, right? Then he goes on with another illustration, verse 31. Or what king? when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Right? I mean, no one goes to war flippantly. Unless you're what? A fool. Right? So if you should count the cost of a building project, and if you should count the cost of of a war... How much more should you count the cost of following after Christ? This isn't a game. This isn't something to take flippantly. This is what we're telling you. We are saying you have to lose your life. That's the cost. And it seems like a it's paradoxical, isn't it? Because in one sense, what does it cost to become a Christian? Financially nothing, right? So it's a what? It's a free gift, we say. That's true, but the Bible uses that language in Romans 6. But yet again, it's, yet, then on, from the other side, it says it cost us everything. <clears throat> so it's a free gift that costs you everything. Can we think of something else that's free but costs us everything? What do you got to pay to join the army? Nothing. They pay you. But what does it cost you? Your life. It might cost you your life. Yeah. Right? So it is with following Jesus. You don't have to pay to do it. You don't have to muster up good works to do it. Jesus says, Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to Me and I will give you rest. I will give you life. But to come will cost you your life. It will cost you your life. But it's worth it, isn't it? The cost of discipleship is high. But the cost of non-discipleship is even higher. Right? Because what does it cost you to not follow Christ? Eternity hell, right? Jesus put it this way at one point. He says, he who seeks to keep his life will what? He who loses his life for my sake in the Gospel will gain it. it, Right? Jim Elliot said, he is no fool 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, right? I mean, we're going to lose this life anyway. It's temporal. I mean, I'm 29. I say this a lot. Though. I mean, I'm just enamored with the fact that I'm going to be 30. It's amazing. I remember being 13 like last week, and now it's over. I mean, I'm over the hill. I'm 30. <laughs> Caitlin's going to rebuke me now. She had to do that last time. She said, you should have seen all the people over 30 looking at you. Like, what? How old are we? But I mean, amazing. It goes by so fast. It's, you're going to lose it anyway. But if you lose it without Christ, you lose it forever. But if you lose it in Christ, you gain it forever. You gain it forever. Some of us will end up like us, nice, cool room, and yeah. doing pretty good. But, you know, but the thing is, it's going to cost. You know, it's going to look different for, for each person. That's know? right. You know, and that's I guess that's where that whole. Would you say that's where that whole working out your own salvation, fear, and trembling comes into play? It's, sure. What is it? What does it mean for me to be a disciple? Not the other guy over here, but for me. Yes, good. So yeah, so the cost. So when Jesus says, "Lay down your life," that means you you surrender, right? You yield it. Which means that for you, it might really mean death, or it might mean, you know, be willing to look stupid for Jesus by handing out tracks and telling him their shoes look nice, right? Had a sleep on day. So, right. So, so the cost is your life. What that looks like in actuality differs, right? It might not be literally dying for Jesus, right? But everyone dies in the sense that they yield their life to Christ. They give it over. I'm done. This isn't mine anymore. I've realized I'm not the captain of my own soul. I'm yielding to Jesus. Very, very good. Like the military, you're pretty much signing and being checked yes. up to and including your life. Right. So for a time, it costs you everything, really, right? I mean, you blood, sweat, and tears. You're, you're there. You, sometimes they don't even give you a phone. You can't call people. you got to write letters. I mean, it's high cost. But the way it looks at, you know, how it fleshes itself out might differ. Some people die. Some people are wounded and so on. Very good point. And in the case of uh, Elliot's, Jim died. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And her child. Yep. And then we know the rest of the story, right? Indians were converted, and, and then his wife goes and serves the very ones who killed her, her husband. Amazing. Uh, so that's repentance, and, and kind of in parentheses I put submitting to Christ as Lord. Submitting to Christ as Lord. If you're going to be saved, you've got to yield to the Lordship of Jesus. And then the second part here, of course, is faith. Believe, right? We've got to believe. We don't have much time. <clears throat> what is faith? What is faith? <clears throat> so, having confidence in things you don't see, right? Hebrews 11, good definition. Okay, how else would you describe faith? The Greek word, go ahead. Trusting God no matter what happens. So no matter what happens? You're on a train and you go through a dark, dark tunnel. You're not going to jump off the train going, I don't trust it. 
train. You're going to sit there and trust that the conductor is going to get that train through the tunnel and not on the other side. There you go. So trust, right? And the Greek word pistuo, it has the idea of uh, persuasion and thus commitment. I'm so persuaded this is true that I'm committing myself to it. Right? If, you're, if you're persuaded that the train conductor is going to drive it well, you get on the train. If I'm persuaded that uh, that my wife's not going to poison my food, I'm going to eat her dinner that she cooks, right? Because I trust my wife. I don't know if I would trust you if you cook for me, but I do trust my wife. So to be trusting in someone is to commit to that. It's to demonstrate that in your action. If someone's standing on... Uh, a hot, you know, the fourth floor of an apartment complex in the window, it's on fire. He knows if he stays, he's going to die. The fireman says, young man, jump, I'll catch you. And he says, I believe, but I'm not going to jump. Does he really believe? No. If he really believed, he would, what would he do? Jump. And if you really believe in Jesus, you're going to commit yourself to Him and live for Him. Right? And we'll talk more about that. <clears throat> Say that again. Putting knowledge into action. Exactly. It always results in action. Right? And we'll talk more about faith next week and we'll hopefully finish up this uh, outline next week. Any final questions or thoughts on repentance and faith? Faith isn't always easy. Are you sure, Sean? Yes. How much are you living a Christian life wrong? <laughs> no, it's not easy. Yes, sir? A young uncle. What'd you say? A young uncle. Did you say a young uncle? Both of your answers today were funny, but they were wildly different. <laughs> Any other thoughts? If you are a Christian and you say you are a Christian, but if you don't live out what you believe, you aren't a Christian. Because if you do not say this is what I believe. If you say to the world, this is what I believe, but then you live like the world. Yeah. Do you really believe it, right? It's like, are you willing? It's like you should have never been saved if you weren't willing to allow. No. Good point. Amen. Amen. We'll talk more about that next week. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for this time in Your Word, this time of discussing a true biblical gospel response. I pray that each of us have responded in that way, repenting and believing, and that uh, You would give us the grace and boldness to go into the world and call people rightly to come to Christ, to lay down their lives, to repent and believe that they might be saved. Thank You for this time, we pray. Amen.